Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Head of Economic and Market Strategy at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $158 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Happy summer to everyone, a time of the year where we are outdoors more and may be placing a greater emphasis on fitness. The healthcare industry continues to develop new treatments for chronic conditions that affect the well-being of millions of Americans, a key one being diabetes. Over the last year or so, researchers at several large biopharmaceutical makers have identified new indications for their diabetes drugs to treat obesity, another condition that affects a wide population. Here today to tell us more about effective ways to manage these conditions are ClearBridge Senior Healthcare Analyst Marshall Gordon, a regular guest to the podcast booth, and Brittany Henderson, also a senior healthcare analyst and a first-time visitor to our show. Welcome to you both. Marshall and Brittany will be discussing innovations in therapeutics and medical devices in today's podcast, The Diabetes and Obesity Market Opportunity. Brittany, Marshall, thank you so much for clearing your schedule and being in the podcast booth with me, so welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. And I think that this is an epidemic in the U.S. We just went through our first pandemic, hopefully our last pandemic over the last couple of years. But this epidemic is something that continues to gain strength in the U.S. If you look at obesity or diabetes over the last 50 years, it appears that it's tripled and it continues to go on unabated. So I want to start off at a 10,000-foot view and really start with you, Brittany. Can you give us an overview of about how a diabetes affects the population, kind of what is the difference between the types of diabetes that are out there, how many people does it affect, and then how is it being currently treated? Sure, and thanks again for having me, Jeff. So in the U.S., there are approximately 30 million people with diabetes. 30 million, so about one-tenth of the population. Staggering number. And split in that population, you have about 5% of people who have type 1 diabetes. And type 1 diabetes occurs when the pancreas does not produce any insulin. And because the body does not produce any insulin, type 1 diabetes patients have to heavily manage their disease or unfortunately are at high risk of adverse consequences. These patients must inject themselves with insulin daily. And in a way, they're supplementing the work that the pancreas would otherwise do. The majority of the diabetic patient population, however, are those with type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes occurs when the body makes less insulin than it is supposed to. But you're still making some insulin, just not enough. You are. The body starts first by becoming a bit desensitized to insulin. And then the pancreas has to work overtime or work harder to produce even more insulin. Eventually, the disease progresses, however, and the pancreas eventually stops producing insulin altogether. The management of type 2 diabetes varies based on this progression. So you typically start managing type 2 diabetes with diet and exercise, and then treatment plans are intensified as needed. So then you add medication, typically starting with oral medication, then injectables such as GLP-1s, and then finally insulin. So type 2 diabetes, is this um, something that's hereditary or is this something that is an outgrowth of lack of exercise and diet? It's mostly the latter, Jeff, unfortunately. And so as we have this very large obesity patient population, we also end up having a very large type 2 diabetes patient population as things progress. Now, you mentioned obesity. I want to talk about that, Marshall. 
There's been several diabetes therapeutics that have also been approved to, to manage obesity. And there's been a big breakthrough, and you had mentioned this, Brittany, in GLP-1, which is glucagon-like peptide 1, class of drugs that improves blood sugar and leads to weight loss. But talking a little bit about this breakthrough, what are you seeing there, and what are other similar treatments that are out there? And, and maybe more importantly, from an opportunity standpoint, who are the key players in this space? So the first GLP-1 as a drug was approved in 2005. I remember being on a pharma team at the time, and it was approved to treat diabetes, which is that for those type 2 diabetics who don't produce enough insulin, they have too high blood sugar, this is a drug that was approved to help them lower that blood sugar. And it does actually do that by increasing the activity of the pancreas that's still intact and increasing the amount of insulin. And the market has evolved with successive generations of these GLP-1 drugs, each becoming sort of more effective, as well as all of these are in proteins, and so they're injected. And it's becoming not only more effective, but fewer injections, which are better for people in that they don't enjoy injections. And, and so me, fewer me included in that group. <laughs> yes. And one of the things that they had noticed with the GLP-1 drugs is that it helped those patients who were diabetic also lose weight. And this was mainly through reducing the hunger signals from the gut or the stomach to the brain. Interesting. So what the pharma companies did was they looked at higher doses. They looked at more potent molecules with more effect. And they looked at them specifically for weight loss, even in non-diabetic patients. And what they found was that before a patient develops diabetes, these things are even more effective. And to put this in sort of a context... Old diet pills, if you will, generated about mid-single-digit percentage weight loss. So percentage of your body weight or yeah. BMI or— Percentage of your body weight. Okay. So if you weighed, for instance, 200 pounds, you could shed 10 pounds with, with these types of medications. As the GLP-1s were stronger, they've gotten as high as 15%. Wow. Which, you know, now you're talking about somebody who's 200 pounds losing 30 pounds. The next generation, which is a Lilly drug, is actually getting close to or or will achieve 20% weight loss. And there's a generation beyond those that are going to be in the low to mid-20s. And to give you another sense of it, people get bariatric surgery, which is a very significant weight loss surgery that's irreversible. And that often generates weight loss of 25 to 30%. So we're almost at that benchmark today. With no risk. Of the surgery, or well, l- certainly not risk. the risk of surgery. There are some risks to taking drugs, as there are in any, but I think it's orders of magnitude lower. And so, really, there are two key players today: Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, which is is a Danish company. There are others chasing the injectables market, and I think it's going to be very challenging to catch up with Lilly and Novo because they're already. They're already moving ahead with their next generation, which is tremendously powerful drugs. And so I think they're going to stay ahead. There are some companies as well working on oral drugs. Lilly is actually in the lead there. And one of the other more promising programs, I think, is actually Pfizer's. So we'll see how that develops over time. But I do think that that's one that is going to be one to watch. So it sounds like the leaders in this space have pretty wide moats. It's going to be hard to catch them at at this juncture. 
Let's talk about the opportunity, right? How, how big of a market are we talking with these drugs? And maybe a potential issue is, is are there payer and reimbursement issues that are still outstanding, or is that pretty black and white? So I'll, I'll start with giving you a sense of how big it can be, and then we'll, we'll delve into some of those issues of how this market gets developed over time. Because it's the sales of these agents are big today for diabetes, but for directly for weight loss, they're actually not that substantial. As Brittany had said earlier, there are about 30 million type 2 diabetics, of which about 5 million are very obese. Not just overweight or even just obese, but actually very significantly. Like a BMI over 40? BMI over 40. Okay. And another 20 million, 25 million in total, are obese. They're significantly overweight. Now, from the obesity side, over 100 million Americans, almost a third, are considered obese, BMI over 30. That is a shocking statistic. It's a shocking statistic. And by the way, 25 million of those are very obese, BMI over 40. So 20 of the 25 million don't have diabetes yet. Okay, so. Yet. Yep. And it's estimated that about half of these patients are over 65 or in Medicare. And so that's the sort of total opportunity. Now, if you look at how much GLP-1 drugs cost, they're about five or $6,000 today, or maybe a little bit more for weight loss specifically. On an annual basis? On an annual basis. But I think they'll come down over time as these become more and more accepted. But I think even what you're seeing is a market for both diabetes and obesity, which I think is sort of going to eventually be one singular market that could be as big as $60 billion by the late 2020s. And I think there are even scenarios, depending on what happens, where it could be as large as $80 billion of, of drug sales. And, and that's coming from a base of today of, you know— 15 to 20. Okay, so you're looking at a market that's going to triple, maybe quadruple. Yeah. I mean, even even in the past year— the prescriptions for GLP-1s has doubled. Wow. Now, the thing is, as you mentioned, there are some real barriers to developing this market that I do think will will come down over time. First is that you need to convince healthcare practitioners, primarily doctors, that obesity should be treated medically. It's historically not been something that physicians have treated as a condition with, with drugs. And so you need to convince them. The other piece is you need to drive the acceptance by those who pay for medications. And that's both the commercial insurers, the United Healthcare's and Aetna's and, and Cigna's of the world, as well as the government in Medicare who pays for healthcare for people over 65. So at this point, these drugs are pretty limited in their coverage. That's correct. The companies cite various statistics, but I think there's a real lack of good coverage for these drugs. And actually, within Medicare, which is a significant portion of this population, Medicare is actually, by statute or law, not allowed to pay for these drugs. And it will require an act of Congress to allow them to do that. Now, I think the real key to unlocking this market is going to be proving that there are hard benefits in terms of health, like fewer in heart attacks, fewer strokes, things like that, from just weight loss, not just diabetes control, but weight loss. And in diabetic patients, these GLP-1 drugs have actually shown that. 
And Lilly and Novo are running trials to demonstrate that as well in non-diabetic obese patients. And one of the big trials that Nova's running is gonna, going to report out this year. And I think that that's going to be really critical for, again, moving the, the dialogue forward, saying, physicians, it's not just we think that weight loss is going to be positive for your patients, but here we have evidence that weight loss using GLP-1s reduces bad outcomes like heart attacks and strokes, and it's before you become diabetic. And I think that that's going to also catalyze the payers. They're not going to be able to say, well, this is just a cosmetic thing. It's not. It's a real health issue, and we can save lives by paying for these. Well, also, and save money, right? If you look at the American Diabetes Association, I think a person with diabetes has 2.3 times the medical expenses of a person without diabetes. That's absolutely true. Making that pharmacoeconomic argument, I think, will be very helpful. And a lot of these events, I think something like a heart attack or a stroke, they are acute medical events that are quite costly with hospital care. Now, Bernie, I want to move over to you because, you know, you cover medical devices and there's a lot of innovations there in being able to make diabetes more manageable. Where are you seeing opportunities in these areas? Sure. So the two medical devices that have been key and making diabetes more manageable for patients has really been the insulin pump as well as continuous glucose monitoring. And the evolution of insulin pumps has made diabetes more manageable for those patients who use insulin daily because th- think about it. A patient who is on insulin effectively needs to do two things every day and sometimes multiple times a day. They need to measure their blood glucose, which historically was done via traditional finger sticks, and then adjust their blood glucose levels by using insulin. Insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors, or CGMs, help to take over both of those functions for patients. The first insulin pump prototype was developed in the 1960s, and since then, insulin pumps have become a lot safer, a lot smaller, and also just a lot more functional for the end user, which has led to a lot more acceptance by patients, particularly those patients in the type 1 diabetes community. And then CGMs have also been around for several years. But over the last five years specifically, they've actually started to replace traditional finger sticks. Which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I think the the bigger or more recent innovation has been the combination of these two things. So being able to connect a continuous glucose monitor or CGM to an insulin pump. Because remember that CGM is informing a patient of their glucose levels at all times. And when it can talk to an insulin pump, that CGM can now tell a patient how much insulin they need on a day-to-day basis. And this is important because those insights allow the diabetic patient to just effectively manage their disease a lot better than they were able to historically. The key players in the insulin pump market are Medtronic, Insulet, and Tandem. And it's about a $5 billion market today, but growing because we still have a host of patients that are converting from using a needle and syringe and finger sticks to using an automated insulin pump. Now, what percentage of the population would you say you know, still could make that conversion? Sure. So insulin pumps are only about 55% penetrated. And so there's a lot of room to go in reaching a max penetration level. We probably will never get to 100%. You would think 50% is pretty low, right, given the ease. Exactly. Yeah. But really, that innovation of connecting the sensor to the pump only happened very recently. 
So I think this is going to catalyze more of a penetration movement from the traditional standard of care to now these insulin pumps. Well, great. We've covered a lot of ground today. I'm thinking this is a tremendous market, a lot of growth, obviously, over the course of, of this decade. Converse some of these trends that we've been talking about from a diabetes and an obesity standpoint. Any closing thoughts on maybe how to participate in the innovations that we're seeing in these marketplaces and with the diabetes? Marshall, I'll start off with you. I think the two leaders are really going to be the ones that are going to continue to lead in this market. So I've recommended to a number of our portfolios investments in Eli Lilly, as well as Novo Nordisk. And those have been good investments over the past couple of years, and I think are going to continue to be. I continue to watch Pfizer. There are some other smaller biotech companies that are developing potential molecules as well that I watch, but I'm not ready to kind of pull the trigger there. And so I think these large caps that have the infrastructures to go out and sell these and to make them, which has been a real challenge, is really the way to play it. Brittany? Sure. So the players to watch, as I mentioned, within insulin pumps are Insulate, Tandem, and Medtronic. But I haven't mentioned the enablers of CGM just yet. And I think that there's a bigger opportunity there as the CGM market is less penetrated than the pump market overall. And CGMs are applicable both to type 1 patients as well as type 2 patients. And the key players within the continuous glucose monitoring market are Dexcom as well as Abbott Laboratories. All right, well, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity here. And one thing I'll say from my vantage point being head of economic and market strategy, if this is a trend that has some staying power and the U.S. economy might be heading into a recession over the course of the next 12 months, healthcare is traditionally an area that does well in that environment, really insulated from economic fluctuations. And from an economic standpoint, um, if you look at number of people that are on disability, their unemployment rate is about twice that of someone without a disability. If you look at number of people with a disability working part-time, it's about 30% versus 16% for someone without a disability. So hopefully, as these innovations come to bear, um, this will help the labor force participation rate at a time when the U.S. economy desperately needs more labor. But uh, that's all the time that we have for today. I really want to say thank you to both Marshall and Brittany for, for taking the time and sharing your insights with us. I found this really interesting. So again, thank you. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. And I want to thank everybody for joining the July update here for the ClearBridge podcast. We'll be having podcasts in the back half of the year, so we hope that you can continue to tune in. And I hope that you had a great 4th of July and continue to have a healthy and happy summer. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of July 6th, 2023, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole. And they are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.